So I'm going to start this morning with a section of scripture that isn't really the, the text of what I want to share with you, but it, it offers a context for why I'm sharing what I'm sharing. And it's from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. It says this, preach the good news, be ready at all times and tell people what they need to do. Tell them when they are wrong. Encourage them with great patience and careful teaching because the time will come when people will not listen to true teaching but will find many more teachers who please them by saying the things they want to hear. They will stop listening to the truth and will begin to follow false stories. Paul begins this section by telling Timothy, a leader in the church, to preach the gospel, that good news that there is a God, but we as people, humankind, we separated ourselves from him. We left him behind, if you will. Sin separated us from God. But God in his mercy sent his son to redeem us, to buy us back, to atone for our sins so that we could once again be in right relationship. That's the gospel. That's the good news that he's saying to preach. And that's the foundation for everything that we should do in the church. But if we just stop right there, then we miss the rest of what Paul says here. He says that we need to tell people what they need to do. Tell them when they are wrong. You know, it's important for us to stand up here week after week and to preach the gospel and to, to share encouraging things from the pulpit. I get that. At the same time, we as leaders have a mandate to explain things truthfully and tell people when they're wrong, to say what the right things are. See, I think, honestly, that's a, a big part of what's wrong with much of the church in America is that we've stopped doing that. We have not declared, no, this is wrong, this is sin. See, when we don't do that, then it's conceivable, according to Paul writing here, that people will stop listening to the truth and will begin to follow false stories. And we see that. And we don't ever want that to happen here. And so this is going to be one of those sermons that perhaps is not as much fun. Oh, they're all scared now. Great book, uh, The Divine Mentor by Wayne Cordero. He said this, when I enter the Bible, it reads me as much as I read it. I'm actually submitting myself to a panel of mentors standing before a benevolent tribunal tasked with checking my motives. Each time we read God's word, the motives of our heart are scoured and cleared of toxic intrusion. And that is true not only when we personally take time to read, but also when we hear the word proclaimed. And I'm fully expecting that as we gather here corporately, congregationally, we hear God's word proclaimed, that's happening. We're hearing those, those mentors who have gone before us saying things that we as believers today need to hear. So I've entitled this message, Humility, Servanthood, and Stiff-Necked People. And I know the, the initial response is, is he calling us stiff-necked? And the answer is yes. But it's not just you, it's me too, it's all of us, all of, uh, every person. We have this tendency to be stiff-necked. We, we, we don't honestly always want to follow what God wants us to do. Just, all right, just want to make sure that we got the right, right, right group of people. Let, let, let's pray. Father, today, as we encounter your word, we are giving you permission right now to speak into us by your word and by your spirit. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same as what we came. We, we, we honestly desire for you to work in us, and so we give you permission right now Lord, have your way in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And we thank you that you will because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, it says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, and by the way, that's you and me, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, and by the way, that's you and me, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world by, never mind, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our, our society is, seems to be obsessed with superheroes, Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk and Greenland, on and on and on. And, and they're really different from the comic books from when I was a kid, all right? Now they grace multi-million dollar movie screens with you know, people flocking to them, amazing cinematography stuff that happens. Mind-boggling. And in part, we, we like the idea because... I think there's something inside of us that secretly would like to be like them. We want to be the one who saves the city or the nation from destruction. We'd, we'd like to be the one who, who slays the evil dragon, if you will. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There, there are superheroes in the Bible. Oh, they're not called that. But I think of David, who slew the giant. You think, of, think of Daniel in the the, the den of hungry lions that came out without a scratch. Think, think of, uh, of Queen Esther and, and how she risked her life and ended up saving their entire nation. Th think, of, think of Moses leading the, the, the people of Israel out of Egypt and holding the staff above the sea and it parting. I mean, this is superhero stuff, guys. It is. So there's nothing wrong with with that whole idea, but I do, as I look at the, the superheroes in the Bible, something about them strikes me. Not one of them asked for that position. As a matter of fact, some of them didn't even want that position. They were all depicted as having a, a desire to know God and his ways. And because of that, because of that mindset, can I, can I say heart set? That positioned them to become, if you will, a superhero. It wasn't that they coveted that role. It's they wanted to follow God and his ways. If they're going to boast, they're going to boast in him. You've heard me in the past quote from my friend Beck Gamble. She's a good writer. She said this, if you see yourself as the hero of your story, whether it be in marriage, adoption, parenting, teaching, etc., you will be disappointed you must see yourself as a servant. Only then will, be there, will there be real progress. A servant can't be offended. A servant doesn't have his own agenda. A servant participates in another's work. A true servant has the power to love without guile or pride. Society is obsessed with heroes, but we should strive to be servants. If you're going to boast, you don't boast that you're a superhero. You boast in the Lord. And along with that whole idea I find it interesting that today when the, the publishing industry as a whole seems to be struggling, there are more and more books that are about how-to. 
I'm, it, it's, it's everywhere. Better whatever, better housekeeping or better musicianship or better sex or better cooking or whatever. I mean, you see it. Every, and it's not just in the secular marketplace. Go to Christian Book Distributors' website and look up the word self-improvement. You will find over 3,400 different books and videos about how you can improve yourself. You know, all of that makes me think of uh, Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. Excuse me, but if, if this is my best life right now, I'm going to be really disappointed in eternity, I'll tell you that. But my point is not that we shouldn't try to do things better. I think we should. But if we're going to boast, it's not in worldly success. It's not in being a success in you know, what we call success here on earth. No, it's boasting in God because he is the only one that is worthy. He is deserving of every ounce of glory and credit. Only him. Again, God chose from that 1 Corinthians passage, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In the book Little Black Sheep, Ashley Cleveland said this, on the rare occasions that I do yield to humble service, I look for opportunities to point it out in a large group setting. <laughs> Can anyone besides me relate to that? I was at a uh, worship conference many years ago, back when I was the, the main worship leader here, and one of the classes at the conference was just for the primary worship leader in the class, and toward the end of the class, the uh, person teaching challenged us to go back to our church and do a hidden act of service for our pastor. See, and the reason is because when we actually do some kind of service-oriented thing, we want to, just like Ashley Cleveland said, we want to be noticed for it. We want people to recognize oh, what a great thing that person has done. But doing a hidden act of service, that's real humility. That's real servanthood. That's not me getting the credit for it. No, that means I'm deflecting that credit to God. I, uh, I had most of this sermon written uh, last week, and then Steve preached and messed me all up. Um, <laughs> Actually, it, he didn't really. He just, it's something you said kind of added to the sermon. So if the sermon's too long this morning, it's Steve's fault. <laughs> I'm kidding. If you remember, Steve shared from 2 Peter chapter 1 and following, and he read the first verse, and I, I kind of got stuck there. Have you ever done that? You know, he keeps reading it. I'm like stuck in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first, Peter says he's a servant. He says his name, Peter, a servant. And then he says he's an apostle. And then he goes on to say that the people that he's writing to have obtained a faith of equal stature standing as his. You know, if you understand what he's saying, he's saying, I'm not any better than you guys. Oh, I'm an apostle. I was called by God to, to that role. But that doesn't make me better. It's just a different gift. And at the foot of the cross, we're all on the same ground, folks. It's not like somebody is better. People have different callings. I get that, of course, yeah. But that doesn't make somebody better than somebody else. I don't know about you, but I often have a tend 
or I have a tendency to to look down on especially unbelievers, to think that I'm somehow superior, that I'm something special or above them, if you will. But that 1 Corinthians one twenty eight passage again reminds me that I was one of those low and despised in the world, but God chose me. You know, that, that doesn't give me any ability to be proud and haughty, to think I'm something better, does it? No. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That, that leaves out all options for us feeling superior because it, what, we didn't do anything. He chose us. So it would seem to me that true humility would want God to get all of the credit. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul recognized where every bit of his strength came from, every bit of his ability. It was a gift from God. I don't know that I would say that there's a, a fine line between boasting and humility, but there is definitely a line, and I would suggest that it has more to do with the heart than anything. Humility says, I want God to get the glory. I want him to receive all of the credit. Reaching back into your uh, probably school days history books, George Washington Carver, he was born as a slave here in Missouri, but God had apparently given him a brilliant mind in an amazing way with plants, and he became a renowned botanist and inventor. Carver discovered more than 300 different uses for the peanut, go figure. Beverages, cosmetics, dyes and paints, medicines, various food products, I mean, on and on, amazing. Interestingly, it was through his study of science that George Washington Carver came to recognize that there is a God, and then he later came into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, it was pretty normal for him to say, without my Savior, I'm nothing. But later in his life, as a university president, he said this, when I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God said, that, is knowledge, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. <laughs> and he told me. <laughs> I like that. He recognized that what he had was a gift. It wasn't something for him to be proud and haughty about. And think about this. He's born as a slave. He is somebody else's property. He's got nothing to his name at all. And advances to the point where he is renowned not only to us today, but people in that day knew who he was. He had become famous. It would be, I think, really easy for somebody like that to begin to think, I'm something special. I got something going on here. But he didn't do that. He recognized that what he had, everything he had, was a gift from God. That is so backward from how we generally think, isn't it? We want people to notice us. We want people to be impressed by us. We want them to think we're something special. There was a uh, newly commissioned, great story, newly commissioned uh, lieutenant in the army who wanted uh, people, he just got his first office and he's sitting there. He wanted people that came in to recognize that he was really something special. So there's a knock on the door. He picks up the phone like he's talking on the phone. He tells him to come in 
and it's a private, and he says into the phone, yes, sir, general, you can count on me, and he puts the phone down, you know, just trying to get this guy talking to a general here. And he asks the private, what, so what do, you, what do you need there, son? He says, well, sir, I just came to hook up your telephone. <laughs> See, we, we, want, we want people to be impressed by us. That's our normal mindset. I think we spend way too much time trying to impress other people. Stephen Altrogi in his book, Untamable God, said this, humility allows me to quit trying to be a big shot. I can stop reminding the world how important I am. I'm free to be myself with all of my struggles and quirks and imperfections and oddities. I don't have to maintain a veneer of impressiveness, which can be quite exhausting. God isn't impressed with me, but he loves me anyway. God knows exactly who I am, and he still loves me. That's good enough for me. I like that. I think he's exactly right. You know, when you recognize that God loves you, he cares for you, what difference does it make what everybody else thinks, honestly? It's really not that big of a deal. As a tangent to this idea, I want to I clear up something that I think a lot of people struggle with. I, I struggled with it for a, a long time. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is thinking accurately about yourself. See, the problem is that most of us have the perception that we're better than we are. I have seen survey after survey that indicates that the vast majority of people think they are above average. That they're above average intelligence, above average in their driving ability, above average in kindness, whatever. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we cannot all be above average. It just doesn't work like that. Is everybody with me here? So if we all think that we're above average, that we all think we're better than other people, then the obvious answer is to think more lowly of ourselves, right? Not necessarily. That, that might be a good idea for a lot of us, honestly, but that's not really the answer. Romans 12, 3, For by, grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The real answer is, is to think accurately, not too high, not too low, but accurately with sober judgment. And, and honestly, uh, for many of us, that may mean that we need input from other people. See, I think honestly that a lot of things like that are best discerned in community because we don't see ourselves honestly, but other people can help us to see ourselves more realistically, if you will. Think about this. Apostle Paul writing to Titus, I spent, I've been spending a lot of time in the, the letter to Titus recently. Very beginning, it says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You know, if you don't know Paul, and you don't know anything about Paul. This could sound really haughty right here. You know, he, he starts off, he calls himself an apostle. When somebody introduces themselves to me as an apostle, I'm always at least a little bit skeptical, okay? But he doesn't just stop there because he goes on to say, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. He's not just an apostle, he's an apostle for your sake. He's going to help you in your walk with the Lord. Th this could sound a little bit arrogant, don't you think? And then he goes on 
And he, he talks about the, the hope of eternal life is manifested through his preaching that God has entrusted to him, right? Again, if you don't understand, if you don't know Paul, this could sound really haughty. Like, I am God's man, great man of faith and power. I got something going on here. I mean, that's the way it could come across. But that's clearly not Paul's intent. He is thinking accurately. See, think about it the other way. What if Paul said, don't really think of me as an apostle or that my preaching is going to make any difference in your life or, or even that God has called me to preach. See, if he said that, that wouldn't be humility. That would be lying. Paul is thinking accurately. He knows how God has called him, has wired him, has gifted him, and he's okay in that. Humility doesn't mean thinking lowly of yourself. It means thinking accurately. What is God really? How has he gifted you? How has he called you? How has he wired you as a person? And then functioning in that. You know, I have said numerous times over the years, I know that God has gifted me in some, some amazing ways, but I also know I have some huge deficiencies. And I have to deal with those things. I have to recognize those things. That doesn't mean that I'm a failure. No, I'm, a, I'm able to do the things that God has called me to do. But there's other stuff. I just leave it to people that know what they're doing. Thank you, Paul Allen, wherever he's at. For, um, yeah. But even as we're thinking accurately about ourselves, we also need to recognize that, and not just, a, not just as a nice thought, but to realize in practice that whatever we have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And before you say, yeah, I know that verse, I want to ask you, do you really apply it? True humility would not only agree that everything that we have is a gift from God, but would actually act like it. That would actually have the attitude that I'm not better than these people. Whatever I've got is a gift from God. So it means that we don't boast in whatever talents or intelligence or skills or looks or background or whatever we might have. No, those are all just things that God has gifted to us. We boast in God and him alone. Anyone uh, know what Samuel Morse invented? Morse code, very good. Yeah, but something to go along. Somebody said it. Telegraph, Telegraph thank you. Um, Morse was once asked if he encountered situations where he didn't know what to do, and he said more than once, and whenever I, uh, whenever I could not see my way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and understanding. That's a pretty, pretty good attitude. Uh, he, he is honored as being the inventor of the telegraph, but he said he, he never felt really worthy of that title because he said this, I've made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone, and he was pleased to reveal it to me. Whew. See, Samuel Morse knew who deserved the credit. Oh yeah, he was the guy that's credited, if you will, in the earthly sense of being the inventor, and yet he knew who really got the credit. It was God. You know, there's gonna come a day for every one of us we're going to stand before the Lord. And at that point, he is not going to give us accolades based on the things that we have done, if you will. You were such a good housekeeper. You have kept house better than anybody in the history of the world. 
He's not going to talk about what a, a great and articulate speaker you were, how, how people could grasp everything that you said very clearly. He's not going to talk about what a, an amazing visionary you were, or a gifted athlete you were, or a great musician. He's not going to talk about how, how you were faster or smarter or taller or shorter or whatever. No. He's going to talk about what you did with those gifts, how you served with those gifts. Do me a favor just for a moment. Indulge me. Close your eyes. I want to share with you something. Try to imagine God is saying this to you on that great and glorious day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You served humbly. You cared for people. You visited those who were sick. You hung out with folks who were lowly. You encouraged those who were weary. You helped those who were in need. You helped clean up after family meetings. Uh Oh, now he's meddling. You helped clean and do repairs to the church property and for your neighbors down the road. You served tirelessly, helping children to better understand and relate to me. You served others, often in secret, not for some earthly reward, but out of obedience to what I asked of my followers. So now, enter in to the joy of your master. See, what God is wanting from us is that we be humble servants. You can open your eyes now, by the way. All of those things that we have are simply gifts that he has given us. So let me try to make this tangible. I realized in writing this sermon that this could have easily been a very lengthy series, that there are a hundred different paths that we can go down right now to make this practical, but something that God has been dealing with me about recently, and so sorry, you just get it. What if our time is not really our own? You know, we just finished a sermon series about biblical prosperity. We talked a lot about stewardship and how our our money and our possessions don't really belong to us, that we are simply stewards. We are managers of those things. We get that. But what if, what if that's also true about our time? I don't know about you, but as I look at how Jesus uses his time in Scripture, I am challenged. Matthew 12, Jesus healed the guy with the withered hand, you remember? But he did it on the Sabbath. That was a no-no according to the Pharisees. Not supposed to do that on a Sabbath. And that w- they got upset with him, but that was really the thing that kind of set them, sent them over the edge because it was at that point they decided to band together. They were going to kill him. That's what it says, all right? But Matthew 12, 15, Jesus, aware of this, aware that they wanted to kill him, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all. Jesus, aware of this, aware that they wanted to kill him, withdrew from there. If I'm Jesus, I know what God has called me to do. I know that I'm here for a purpose and that a part of that purpose, a big part of that purpose, is that I willingly lay down my life at a certain point in time to fulfill the scriptures. Everybody with me? So if these people kill me here and now, this is not going to be a good thing. And so I primary for me right now i'm aware that they want to kill me so i withdraw i want to get out of here and many followed him and he healed them all i have great difficulty trying to envision jesus knowing what we know about jesus that he's trying to get out of there really quickly and going simon be healed and heather be healed no i think he stops 
He looks into their eyes. He takes the time with every single one of them, regardless of what the Pharisees are doing. That is so backward from how we think. And yet that's what Jesus did. Think about, think about when John the Baptist was beheaded. John was Jesus' cousin. Everybody get that relationship there, okay? And when he heard the news about John dying, it says, Matthew 14, 13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Think about this. Why is, why is Jesus withdrawing here? What's the logical conclusion that we can come to of, of what's going on? I think Jesus is mourning his cousin's death. He, he's, he's sad about this. He wants some time to process. Maybe he wants to pray. Yes? So he, he withdraws and he, go, he wants to go to a, a lonely place by himself. He gets in a boat, but keep reading. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot. So here's Jesus in the boat trying to get to this desolate place. Crowds on the shore, they're going along with him. And when he came ashore, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus wanted to get away, and what happens? He gets mobbed. There's a great crowd. Again, I think if I'm Jesus, I'm going, guys, could you just, just give me a little bit of time right now? Just, just give me an hour. Just give me 20 minutes. Right? Isn't that how we'd think? No, Jesus has compassion on them. Bang, right back into ministry again. Or think of the time that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Crowds came to the door. Actually, Mark's gospel says the whole city gathered together at the door. And, he, and it tells us that he, went, he, he spent that whole evening ministering to people. I remember years ago in church in Tallinn, Estonia, prayer time, um, I'm asked to help pray for people who have real physical needs there. I've never been involved in a prayer line this long before. We prayed for at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours straight. And we're, we're, ours is not the only group, all right? Two of us praying together. By the time we finished, I'm exhausted. I mean, this is, it's just tiring that long, keeping your mind focused, keeping th this right here. And that's what Jesus, that night, so he's gotta be tired. So what does it say? And rising early in the morning, the very next day, rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there. See, I might have said, okay, maybe in a little while, okay? Right? That's not Jesus. So let's go. It doesn't seem to bother him that his prayer time was just interrupted. This time of recuperation was kind of taken away, if you will. No, he just went with it. What if, what if our time really isn't our own? I've been, uh, I mentioned reading the book of Titus recently, and one particular verse just struck me in this context, Titus 3.14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so, that, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need. I have a tendency to shy away from cases of urgent need because cases of urgent need generally interrupt what I'm doing 
and they often take a lot of time. For those two reasons right there, I'm not a big fan of cases of urgent need. Am I the only one here that has? And yet, Scripture tells me I'm supposed to be involved in those things. And it makes sense if I understand that my time really isn't my own, that it doesn't belong to me. See, I've been feeling convicted about this whole thing recently of time, and you guys are just the recipients of this, if you will. Years ago at a conference, somebody made a statement. They said that as a leader in the church, that I am not given to my, only to myself, I am also given to God and his people. And I've seen that over and over. The ideas that I have, the things that God is dealing with me on, are often not just for me. They're also for others. And so I'm guessing that there are other people that God's talking to here today, not just me. Now keep in mind, I'm not suggesting that you should never have any time to yourself, all right? I shared a couple of months ago... Um, in the whole prosperity teaching, the, the first Timothy chapter six, verse 17, richly, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, all right? So I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have downtime, you shouldn't have vacations, that you shouldn't have time to just goof off, all right? I'm not suggesting that at all. Everybody hear me on that. But I am suggesting that our culture takes those things to extremes. I've seen so many surveys that suggest that the thing that people in our society guard the most is their free time. Don't mess with that. And too much of that mentality has been adopted into the church. I'm not saying this church, I'm saying the church in general. And that is clearly not the pattern that we see in Jesus' life, nor is it the pattern that we see in Scripture in general. So my question is, how do you use your free time. And again, I'm not suggesting that every moment should be spent serving others. We need time for ourselves. Totally get that. But maybe God's asking you to increase that percentage today. I don't know. And I know, sure as you guys are sitting here, that there's somebody who's going, but I'm already so busy. And I hear that over and over. I've used that one many times. And we are, we're busy in our society, but that's like a, that's like a badge, it's a medal in our culture. I, I am so busy that, you know, I don't know about you, I, I am totally blown away. I know a, a single mom who is raising four teenagers, helping out a guy with some serious medical conditions and trying to help orchestrate a, huge production and keeps volunteering for other stuff. I don't get that mentality. I want to, don't get me wrong. But I'm selfish. But I believe that God is calling us to a higher standard. That we don't act like the world. I told you this wasn't going to be a fun, warm, fuzzy sermon, guys. Sorry. So I'm hoping that there are some here that are as convicted in hearing this as I was in writing it. And when we're convicted, when God's 
Holy Spirit comes in and convicts us. When we're convicted by the word, we have two choices. Let me illustrate it this way. Before Barb and I moved here, we lived in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin in the winter, they use lots of salt on the roads. They don't use as much here because we don't have as much snow here, right? Which, yes. But up there, they have lots of snow, lots of salt. And when you get lots of salt on your windshield, if the sun hits it at the right angle, you can't see a blooming thing. It's just like totally obscured. But strangely enough, that same windshield, same salt, if you drive at night with nobody coming at you, it's like it's not even there. You don't even notice it. So when you have all that salt on your windshield, you get two choices. You can either, uh, you can either clean your windshield or you can just drive at night, just stay in the dark. <laughs> when we're convicted by God's word, we can either come clean or we can stay in the dark. Our choice. And see, several times in the Bible, God refers to people who are unwilling to acknowledge their sin as stiff-necked. That Hebrew word has the attitude of, yeah, well, I'll show you. Often referred to as hard-hearted. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Again, those terms are for people that refuse to acknowledge their sin. But see, from a biblical perspective, repentance is actually a gift from God. John Ortberg said it this way, repenting does not increase God's desire to be with us, it increases our capacity to be with him. And when we repent, then the Lord works in us, changes us. Oh, it's generally just a little bit of, at a time, but we're being sanctified. We're being changed, conformed more and more into his image. Matt Richard said this, of all the times that the word sanctified appears in the English Standard Version's New Testament concordance, it is in the Greek passive voice. Point being, it is the Lord who sanctifies. What can we conclude? Sanctification talk is gospel talk. Sanctification is a divine gift. God works in us. Oh, we have a role. We have to open our hearts to him. We have to allow him to do it. But he's the one that makes the changes inside of us if we'll let him. We're going to take communion together. And I think that's a really good time for us just to reflect. What, is, what, what does this mean for me as a person? What I just heard. What is God saying to me through what I've just heard? Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have heard your word, God, we, we desire to be not just hearers, but to be doers. And so we're inviting you, Lord, Shine your searchlight into our hearts today. Show us where we need to repent. Show us where we need to, to change. And then give us the grace, your grace, to make that happen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.